How are you all? You doing okay? I'm Andy, and it's great to be with you. I ran 6K yesterday, so that's pretty disappointing. No, 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 that does not deserve a clap, but yeah. Thanks, May. Um, we're, a few of us doing a half marathon in a few weeks, and everyone is well ahead of schedule apart from me, so God bless them. Pray for me. We are in a series on James, and today is the last session, and I hope you'll agree it's been helpful, but it's also been challenging to us as individuals and as a church community. It's been meaty at times, and as we've said many times, James does not hold back what he wants to say to us. And I think there's a real need, isn't there, for us as followers of Jesus to come and be open to what he might want to say to us, to be challenged and sharpened. And yes, sometimes we want to be told that God loves us, and he absolutely does. Yes, we want to know about his grace, but we also want to know how we can look and act and live and love more like Jesus. So we're going to jump straight in. We are in Acts, not Acts, James 4 from verse 13. James 4. If you want to open up your Bible, then do so. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this city or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say if it's the Lord's will we will live and do that, do this and do that. As it is you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. A few years back, a friend of mine had the opportunity to meet Billy Graham. If you don't know Billy Graham, he spoke to in his life two billion people, they reckon, in terms of through media, through television, and also through conferences and crusades. There's one occasion he spoke to 1.1 million people in front of him sitting down. I'm not, I haven't counted this morning, but I think that's more than there is here today. But he had a phenomenal ministry, and my friend got a chance to meet with him. And he said, Billy, you know, I'm a young, up-and-coming pastor. What one piece of advice would you give me? And he said, life's quick. Life's quick. Well, thanks, Billy. Thanks for that gem of wisdom. All those years of ministry, and the best you've got is life's quick. But that's what James is talking about here. He's saying that life is a mist is the term he uses. You'll see from my incredible prop right here. I hope, I hope you can see me through the fog. And this, if you can't see, if you can't see, I wouldn't worry too much. I spent all week wrestling whether to get a fog machine and all sorts, but the best I can come up with is my child's humidifier. It's terrible. But basically, life is a mist, and James is referring to the fact it's a click, it's a flash, it's a blink in the scheme of eternity. He's talking about the haze that's there in the morning, which is there, and then it disappears. It's fragile. It's vulnerable. In the context of the fact there's 8 billion people on the earth and many people have lived before me and after, will live after me, my life is a mist, it's a blink. It's quick, it's fragile. If you're here for the first time, if you're not yet a Christian, then as much as we want to challenge those of us who follow Jesus, it's also a recognition that states in the obvious that life is a blink, life is a click, and what we do, decisions we make, the life we choose to live matters in the context of eternity. Choosing to follow Jesus for eternity matters. And then James, as he often does, really lays out two options and says, which of these do you want? One of the options he says is life is a mist, therefore one, sorry, today, sorry, one of the options he says is today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. He's effectively saying you can try and fit God into your life. You can try and be in the driving seat. You can try and take control of your life. That's one option. 
The other option he lays, and he contrasts the two, is if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. We surrender to God's will and purposes. He's laying down his two options to try to fit God into our lives, try and build the life around me, or to surrender to his will and purposes. And I want to simply speak into both of these today. I want to spend some time looking at how we can fit God into our lives and the warnings associated with that. And then also look at how we're called to surrender, called to be people of dependence, called to be people who lay our lives down before Jesus. And I want to suggest three warnings as we think about how we can fit God into our lives, how we can try and make him accommodate our plans and try and build our lives around us rather than surrendering, depending on him. I want to suggest that we can be complacent, there can be compromise, and we can lead to control. Complacency, compromise, and control. So let's first look at complacency. And James is writing to wealthy merchants across Palestine and the Mediterranean. And they're confidently declaring their plans and their trading activities. And it's worth saying that it's not been easy for them socially or economically. They'd faced persecution, they'd faced challenge. But now things were starting to look up. Once the persecution and the opposition started to look up, they were starting to get confident and complacent in their plans. They started to become self-reliant, self-assured, self-sufficient. They started to get complacent. What does complacency look like for us? I was coaching my son yesterday who plays for Edinburgh South. And there's, I think, six or seven levels of squad. And yesterday, it was the first and second teams playing each other in a friendly match. It wasn't particularly friendly, but I assume it was. But the first and second were playing each other in a friendly match, preparing for some matches today. And the second team beat the first team. Why? Because the first team had the ego, had the kind of belief before they walked onto the pitch that they'd got it. There was a complacency. There was an arrogance. There was a lack of humility. That's what James is talking about us to us as followers of Jesus. That's what he's talking to about to his church. We get complacent. We forget God. And I think this is a warning to us. I don't want to go into why does God allow suffering. But just as a nutshell, I think it's worth saying that when we have challenges and opposition, we can run to God or we can run away from God. And as we run to God and come to him in desperation and in our need and in our hurts and our pains and our struggles, we come to God and we turn to him and often depend on him increasingly. But often when things get comfortable, as we see in this passage, when God's people got comfortable, they started to forget God. Often our discipleship is most vulnerable when things are going well. Often we get complacent when our lives are going well. He's concerned that these New Christians, these new converts would forget God now that things are improving or on the outlook or on the positive. If life is going well for you, fantastic, that's great. But don't forget God, don't drift, don't allow your faith to get lukewarm. James isn't some hothead revolutionary. He's simply encouraging his believers to turn to the word and to turn to God to faithfully follow him. You see, because what we see in this passage is that our complacency has consequences for us and for others. It so often leads to us when we're in a standstill in our faith, actually we go backwards, or sin creeps in, or we drift, or we get lukewarm. Like any relationship, we have to invest in it, otherwise it suffers, it struggles. It impacts ourselves, our relationship with God, when we get complacent, it suffers. Our walk with Jesus hinders, but it also impacts Others, our actions, or indeed our inactions in this passage, impact others. 
And in verse 17, James says this, know that the good they ought to do and don't do it, it is a sin for them. And this is one of the few places in Scripture where Jesus actually, or James in this instance, challenges our non-activity, our non-action as sin. He's saying because you're getting complacent, because you're not acting, you're actually impacting others by not building the kingdom, by not looking for those on the margins, by not caring for those most in need. James has a real heart for those in poverty, a real heart for those who are struggling in society. And he's saying now because you're getting complacent, now you're getting self-assured, now you're becoming about you, you're forgetting those on the fringes of society, it impacts others. Now your desire to share the good news is less, and now your desire to help those who are struggling and broken is less so. And what we see in this society, if you do a bit of hunting around, is that they hated the political leaders, the people who are struggling, because they didn't feel they were doing enough for them. They were also angry with the Christians for their inactivity, their inaction. Their complacency led them to not helping others on the fringes of society. We need to seek God's will for our lives in this church and not accidentally or intentionally become complacent in our faith. It impacts others and it impacts us. Where is God challenging us to not be complacent, not be lukewarm, not be just going through the motions of our faith, but actually to wholeheartedly follow him? Because so often our complacency leads to our compromise. Jesus challenges this church who just carry on is the term he uses us in this passage. This is what James is challenging the church about. He's challenging them as they are the new Sadducee converts. And broadly at this time, there was four types of Jewish Christians. There was the Essenes, there was the Zealots, there was the Pharisees, and then there's the Sadducees. These are the Jewish sects, and as we see in this passage, it's the new Sadducees that have become converts of following God. And the Essenes are the ones who thought the culture was so difficult to be part of that they escaped the mountains, escaped the hills, run away from it, almost like modern-day monks. Then we have the zealots who, because of the oppressive Roman government, they fought violence with violence. They tried to take it on with violence and with oppression. Then the Pharisees, who we read a lot about, and they were the ones who, holy and vow, legalism, the laws, the expectations, they placed them on one another and said, it's about living to the law, it's about living to the legislation and the expectations of the commands of the Ten Commandments. But then here he's talking largely to a church which is built up of Sadducee Christians, Sadducee converts. And their temptation, because they were wealthy and affluent, because they were doing well in their trade and their farming, their temptation was just to fit in, to compromise, to just stand, to not stand up and stand out, but to actually just fit in with a culture around them, to absorb a culture, to compromise. And he says that their values and their beliefs are being compromised. Their faith is being compromised. He says, your arrogant schemes, your arrogant schemes. He's saying that your values, the way you're following God, is being compromised because you're so determined to make it successfully. You're so determined to fit in. You're so concerned about your own wealth and development and progress that you're forgetting what you're called to do as disciples of Jesus. It was a hard to be a Christian at this time, understood it was hard to follow Jesus, but they decided to compromise and to fit in and to blend in rather than stand out. How do we not compromise on our faith? How do we stand out? How do we live a different way to those who are around us in our workplace, in our school gates, in the context we find ourselves? How do we stand up and stand up for Jesus? Now, 
this is complex and I don't want to be glib around this because it looks different for each and every one of us and our contexts are different, our situations we find ourselves in this week will look different but we see it very publicly, don't we, with Kate Forbes, how does she be a politician, how does she stand up for God but also adhere to political expectations and rules and the expectations of government? How do we in our workplaces not compromise on our Christian faith, not compromise on our values and what we're called to do, but also honour our bosses, honour the structures, honour the situations we find ourselves in. It's complex. But what we do need to do is we need to be prayerful and not sleepwalk into decisions that we regret. We need to be prayerful and pursue Jesus in those contexts and not sleepwalk into things, uh, inactivity that have eternal consequences. That's what, Jesus, that's what James is warning the flock about. That's what he's guarding the flock about. That's why he uses this strong language, now listen. He cares for them too deeply for them just to carry on. He wants them to know that they can't be lukewarm. They can't be mediocre. They've got to stand up and stand out for Jesus. They can't compromise. They can't compromise their value systems. They can't compromise what it is to follow Jesus. They're to stand up and stand out for him. Where are we getting complacent? Where are we compromising our faith? And then we also see this challenge not to control. So often when we are compromising our faith, our responses to control the environments we're in. We want to control the situations we're in. But James speaks against this control about us putting ourselves in the driving seats. Now, all of us can fall into that temptation, can't we, to be control freaks? Put your hand up if you're a bit of a control freak. Put your hand up if you came with someone this morning who's a control freak. Put your hand up if you need a lift home. But we love to be in control, don't we? We love to be in control of our lives. Adele will laugh, but at home I've got this tiny desk in my bedroom, which I work at from time to time. And like, if a pen goes missing, it drives me crazy. If things get moved, it really irritates me. You're all going like, to sneak into my house now and you move things and like, take things, and it would really annoy me, so don't do that. The kids haven't learned that yet. But honestly, if things get moved or if things get adjusted, it really winds me up. Or if I forget things, it really annoys me. We can so easily want to be in control that relates to how we relate to Jesus. Because James is challenging us to, live, to hold everything lightly, to give control of their lives. And we see this in a few ways. And if we come on, we see that in this passage, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. And there's a few ways that he's challenging them to give God control. He's saying, tomorrow, you're trying to control when things will happen. You're trying to be in control of time. The city, where they are going, the destinations, the plans that God has for them. Spend a year there in charge of time instead of how long the duration you'll be at situations. God's in control of that. Carry on business, what they do, their trade. Profit how successful they will be. And of course, this isn't necessarily wrong. It's not wrong to want a good career. It's not wrong to want to care for our families. It's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to organize life. But it's when we try and take control, remember actually God is in control and not us. That's where the issue is. That's why James speaks so profoundly about their arrogance, about them lacking humility, because these guys are living with pride, boasting about where they're going, about what they're going to do. They're in the driving seat. They're trying to play God. When we think that we are in control of our lives, when we recognize that life is a mist with this hugely powerful, dominant illustration just here, when we realize that we are not in control, but God is the driver of our lives, it changes everything. So what does control look like for you? What does it look like for me? 
Often it's our shadow side, isn't it? It's the other side of us where we're trying to resist change or we're trying to not let go of certain things that God's asking us to let go of or to be dominant in a certain situation and overlook the voices and gifts of others. What does it look like to allow God to search our hearts, to search us and to be open before him, to release the stuff that we're placing in our lives as opposed to giving over to surrender to God? You see, that's what James is challenging his flock to do. That's what he's challenging his people to do. That's what we're being challenged of this morning. Not to be complacent, not to be compromising, not to control, but to surrender it to will and purposes of God. To surrender to will and purposes of Jesus. Because if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. We are not in control. If we needed any reminder of that, we've seen that very acutely in the last few years with the pandemic and so much stuff has been shaken up. Our economy not as stable as we thought it was. Our political structures not as steadfast as we'd hoped. Even kids going to school every day is not a given anymore. Strikes, there's so much stuff that we thought was absolutely non-negotiable now is up for grabs. Even Gary Lineker hosting Match of Day isn't certain anymore. And we need to pray for that because... Finding out on a Saturday that Gary Lineker's not hosting Match of Day is problematic. We need to be praying for that. But I actually think that God is doing something which is really helpful here. As he's stripping us of some of these safeguards of things that we're building our lives on, we're actually being increasingly dependent upon him. As we realize we're not control that he is, it encourages us to surrender and to lay our lives before him, to stop fitting God into our lives, but to fit our lives around his. You see, so often... What we do, and I'm as guilty as this, the next person, we go through our lives and we have a situation at work, a tricky meeting, we pray for that meeting and say, God, God, come and help me. And then we kind of forget God and move on. Or we have a friend who's unwell, a friend who's struggling, we say, God, God, come and help that person. We see some healing and breakthrough and we kind of push God aside again unintentionally. Or we kind of come to evening and we have a tricky situation with a family member and we pray, God, help me have some wisdom with this family member. We try and fit God into our lives, try and fit him into our plans. And of course he cares about our prayers. But what we should be doing is every day saying, God, you show me where we're going to go. What journey are we going to participate on? What adventure are we going to go on? How can I partner with you? How do we surrender to everything that God has for us? How do we lay our lives down to him? One of the key messages of scripture is that the more we depend on him, the more we surrender to him, the stronger we become. When we depend on his grace and his goodness, where we lay it down at the foot of the cross, one of the paradoxes of the kingdom is we're stronger because when we are weak and depend on him, when we turn to him and surrender, then we are strong. That's ultimately what worship is. That's why we worship corporately and individually, to change our perspective, to realize that he's the powerful one. We're not. He's God. I'm not. He's in charge. I'm not. A few days ago, I was feeling a bit overwhelmed with stuff and I felt challenged to spend some time worshipping, which was a delight for everyone, I'm sure. It's just me that heard, but I'll perhaps record it next time so you guys can listen to my lovely tones. But as I was worshipping, nothing physically changed, nothing changed in the world around me, but suddenly my perspective changed, recognized that he's God of the universe. Suddenly I realized that he's all-powerful, I'm not. Suddenly I had a place of gratitude, recognizing all he'd done for me. Suddenly I realized his perspective When we come to him in worship and realize that he's the God of the universe on the throne, it changes our perspective. It changes how we view the things in front of us. We come to him in a place of surrender and dependence. 
in recent years, I think there's been a real rise in culture around entitlement and I don't think it's all bad. I think it's empowering the individual. It's giving people rights. It's giving people individual responsibility. It's not all bad. But the challenge of that can creep into the church and it can be about my rights, my family, my faith, my walk with Jesus. Or it's Jesus plus. I can walk along and try and fit Jesus into my life and say it's me plus my career. It's me plus my family. It's me plus my career. It's me plus my friends. It's me plus my job. Whatever these things are. And not these things are wrong. It's not these things are necessarily wrong. It's just they'll never fulfill us unless we look to them through the grace and gift of Jesus. See, when we come to a place of entitlement, we miss God's grace. We miss that everything is a gift from him. Our posture is one of gratitude and freedoms. We come to him and recognize that he's in charge. He's given everything. He's in complete control. It's his grace that's always sufficient. There's no pressure being placed on us. Everything is a gift from us. And it's actually so liberating because when we look at this passage, he talks about them saying, you're trying to control tomorrow. But actually what we realize is that we're releasing the stresses and strains of this life because he's in control. We don't need to worry about tomorrow because he's on the throne. We don't need to worry about what we do or don't have because he's the provider. We don't need to worry about our plans because he's the one who directs our paths. We're not designed to be able to take the stresses and strains of this world. We're designed to give it to Jesus at the foot of the cross, to lay our burdens, our anxieties, our stresses there. How freeing is that? No matter how overwhelmed we feel, there's a freedom that comes when we say to God, you are in charge. I surrender to you. I'm dependent upon you. I lay my life down on, your, on your, the foot of your cross. I want you to take care of my career, my family. I want you to take care of my responsibilities. As I was praying for this morning, I really felt God said that so easily we can make demands on God. We can say to him that, you know, I I need this answer to prayer or I need that certain situation resolved. We need that particular blessing. And of course, it's right to be praying things. Of course, it's right to be asking God for certain things. But we should be in a posture of surrender, laying everything before him. All our purposes, all our plans are God's to completely surrender to him, to be completely open, to go where he wants us to go, be who he wants us to be, do what he wants us to do. What does it look like to be free from the pressures and strains of this world, to be free from the struggles and complexities of this world because we're part of a different kingdom? I remember chatting to a friend who was from a hot climate. and Imagine being part of a hot climate. Wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine that, it'd be incredible. Like, today's a really hot day, right, by Edinburgh standards. <laughs> but he said that where he was from, they lived to live. And I was really struck by that. They lived to live. They prioritized the right things, in his opinion. They just lived to live and be purposeful. Not the busyness and strains of what we can often place on one another's shoulders, place on our shoulders. And I want to share an illustration, a story about the Mexican fisherman. You might have heard it, but I think this is profound. It's a fable, but I think it's deeply profound. One day, a businessman on vacation was at the pier of a small coastal Mexican village. He looked out and noticed a fisherman rowing his boat to shore in the afternoon sun. The fisherman clocked his boat, sorry, docked his boat and hopped out, resting his fishing pole on the side. Inside the small boat were several large yellow fin tuna. The businessman complimented the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch them. The Mexican replied, only a little while. The businessman then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. 
The Mexican said he had had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The businessman then asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The Mexican fisherman said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take a nice afternoon nap with my wife, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine, play guitar with my amigos, have a full and busy life, senor. The businessman scoffed, I'm an investment banker with a PhD in business management and I could help you. You should spend more time fishing in deeper waters and with the proceeds buy a bigger boat. With the money you make from a bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catches of fish to a middleman, you would sell directly to the process and eventually own your own production plant for canned food. You would control the product, processing, and distribution of fresh fish to thousands of people. You would need to leave a small coastal village, fishing village and move to Mexico, then LA, then London, then New York, where you would run your expanding enterprise. But the Mexican fisherman asked, but senor, how long will this take? The businessman replied, 15 to 20 years. But then what, senor? The businessman laughed and said, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company, stock to the public, and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions, senor, then what? The businessman said, then you would retire, move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take a siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you would sit wine and play your guitar with your amigos. The fisherman smiled and said, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Isn't that a challenge? Now, I don't really want to talk about how busy you are. That's not the purpose of today's talk. And I think in recent years, there's been a corrective around Sabbath teaching and prioritizing family and some stuff around that, which is good and helpful. But I don't think the goal is to do nothing. The goal is not to be productive or to work hard. The goal is to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. Jesus had the weight of the world on his shoulder, literally. Yet if you look at his ministry, the majority of his ministry was interruptions. The majority of his ministry was him going along and being open to a father's will. How do we have opportunity to surrender our plans before him so that we can be used by him in ways that are unexpected, in ways that are not planned. Because actually when we realize that life is a mist, it creates urgency. We realize that life is a blink or a click. We realize that actually we have a job to do. We want to get to the end of the day, put our head on a pillow and think, I've given everything for the kingdom today. I've served you, Jesus. I've given my best for you. When we realize that actually we have finite time on earth, we want to serve this city in ways that, really honor Jesus and bless those around us. We realize we have a new purpose, a phenomenal privilege and responsibility. We realize that actually there's not time to compromise, there's not time for complacency. We want to fully and proactively choose to follow the path of Jesus. What does it look like to remember that life is a myth? Life is a myth, life is a blink. And we can we need to be on our guard about being comfortable, being controlling our lives or compromising what we're standing up for. We need to surrender and give it all to Jesus. To have an urgency based on the fact that he's come to earth, his grace is sufficient for each and every one of us. Because he lived, died and rose again, we have a responsibility and a privilege to serve him while we are on earth, until we meet him forevermore. A few years back, I remember, I met a guy called, sorry, I had a coffee with a guy called Jim Graham, and if you know me at all, you'll know that he's my hero, I mention him pretty much every day. And I went for a coffee with him, and he was, I think, sort of 84 at the time. And Jim was a real mentor figure, someone who really kind of meant a lot to me and really invested in me, he was an amazing guy. 
And that day, he was the most gentle, kind of gracious person, but that day there was an urgency and a, a persistence and a directness that I hadn't really experienced before. He was quite direct with me and quite enthusiastic about the purposes of the gospel, the purpose of the good news, about how we have a, a life on earth and how we have a responsibility to share the good news and to invest in the kingdom and to give everything we've got for Jesus. I remember him being more direct and more purposeful than normal, and he had this passion and this zeal to let me know that actually it really mattered what I gave my life to, really mattered, serving others, sharing Jesus, building the church. That really had to have priority. He didn't seem himself, but I left that day slightly puzzled but really pleased with his challenge and his provocation. The next day it was public knowledge to the church that he had terminal cancer and only a few months to live and was only going to be with his family. It was just coincidence that I was the last person he saw beyond his family. That creates an urgency, that creates a directness, that creates a sense of what matters in this life. He wanted to help me understand that because life is a click, life is a mist, that actually we have a responsibility and a privilege to serve the kingdom, to share the good news. We recognize that it's his grace that encourages us as we come to the foot of the cross, as we come to communion shortly. It's about what he's done, not what we can do. It's about what he's done for us and his worthiness of worship. It's freeing and liberating, recognizing that actually we come to him not because of anything that he wants of us, but because of the undeserved grace. It helps us look forward with anticipation, excitement. Yes, we'll be with Jesus for eternity, and yes, he'll bless us abundantly as we walk with him forevermore. But we have a job to do. We have a privilege and responsibility not to get complacent, not to compromise, not to take control of our lives, but to surrender it at the foot of a cross, to surrender it at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, I'm all yours. Hard words to say, but powerful words, profound words.